Taking that work break, grab a virtual donut and join us as we rocket through this week's tech news. We've got stories from Cisco, Arista, NetBees, and many others. Uh, we're sponsored this week by Cables and Kits. They are experts and awesome. Get your IT needs and a Cisco-related products at cablesandkits.com. And if you mention packet pushers while you buy something, you can get a free Cat8 cable and other free loot. Stay tuned. After the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Pass Solutions on how to automate network troubleshooting with Pass Solutions TotalView software. We talk about how TotalView gives you full visibility into your network and surfaces up actionable insights for monitoring, troubleshooting, and analysis. All right, let's dive into the news. A couple of Cisco acquisitions. First, they acquired Sedona Systems. They make the NetFusion software controller for network automation across IP, optical, and microwave networks. Cisco's aim here is to integrate Sedona Systems into its own Crossworks platform to converge network operations for the IP and optical networks in your life. Yeah, this is this is odd. You kind of would have thought that Cisco's Crosswork would be automating IP, optical, and microwave networks, wouldn't you? Well, that seems like it's in the name of Crossworks, but, you know. Yeah. They're putting it together. Yeah, it seems odd to me that that's what they're doing, if that makes sense. And um, if Cisco's crosswork doesn't actually do automation across IP and optical, what's it for? Because that's what a service provider does. But I guess there must be some gaps in that product. And um, it is Cisco's SDM platform for service providers. Apparently, service provider networks are not the same as everybody else's to some extent or the other. And it was about four or five weeks ago when Cisco Live was on, I talked about how Cisco made a big deal about the IP and the optical merging. Remember we had a section on the Cisco Live saying that they saw the, right. the optical edge being integrated. I think this is part of that play. It's a realization that their existing Crossworks platform is very IP-centric, very router-centric, and that their optical platform was over here. And if you're going to bring them together, you actually the, their existing tools aren't capable of that, so they have to throw them out. Find somebody who's already done it in the classic Cisco way. You know, don't invent it yourself. Get someone else to invent it um, and then put it together. And Sedona Systems talks about their hierarchical controller, HCO, that enables multi-vendor, multi-domain automation and software-defined networking. It's a brain that enables transformation like 5G network slicing, routed optical networking and disaggregation. Uh, so it's basically a way to run the physical underlay of these networks. And um, going into the crosswork portfolio makes sort of sense to me, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the pitch here is that you want to try to break down those operational silos between IP and optical. Uh, so you can do, you know, automate things like path engineering, performance monitoring, troubleshooting, automation, all mm. that good stuff. Well, it's a fairly standard what I call a day two marketing pitch, which is... Um, you know, for the last 20 years, Cisco's been selling the day zero, day one. We've got speeds and feeds and shiny boxes and, you know, we've got features up the wazoo and all that sort of stuff. And now Cisco's discovered day two, the cost of ownership. I think that's the shift to subscription licensing. Customers are going back and saying, well, okay, well, if you want me to pay for your licenses, why does my software not work? Why does my, you know, your features that you gave me don't work? You've got to make them easier to use. You've got to do something for me if you want to justify this ongoing subscription licensing mm -hmm. would be my feel. Mm -hmm. There'd be a lot of issues in here, but some in that sort of space. And I suspect, you know, they're sort of that transition to subscription licensing is actually forcing them to shift their marketing pitch away from, you know, I need this box. It's got to have this many ports too. How do I operate this? How does it intelligently manage my network? How do I orchestrate paths so I don't use 20-year-old principles of MPLS of manual path automation? And so, you know, it's all about operation and cost of ownership. And this is Cisco following the rest of its competitors at a steady, rather sedate pace. You know, the market's already moved off in this direction and Cisco's following along behind. So that's fine. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense if Cisco is going to go to service providers that you need the optical and the IP layer. So why not merge them together? Yeah, that's how I see it. The, the optical and the IP used to be separate because they were fundamentally different things. But we're now at the point where software can stitch them together. So we should. The interesting part here is that Sedona is multi-vendor, multi-domain, which is a recognition that most of these optical IP networks are multi-vendor. They're not just Cisco routers. They're not just Cisco optical. Right. And up until now, Cisco has only sold optical management platforms that work on Cisco's optical with limited multi-vendor capabilities. Most of their SDN is proprietary to their Cisco hardware. You can't use the multi-vendor as a general take. This is a very broad take, right? But that's generally true. Whereas I think Cisco realizes that being multi-vendor and multi-domain is now a way to find new customers. Because I can now move into a network that's got Juniper routers and Sienna Optical and put this over the top right. and then rotate out their data plane. Yeah. So if I was a customer of this product, I would be aggressively multi-vendor to make sure I you know, continue to have some control in this relationship and say to Cisco, no, no, if you want me to use, you know, I'm using your SDN, but I'm going to continue to use my hardware so I get purchasing power and negotiation power. Right. Unlike the enterprise, I think with service providers, particularly at the optical level layer, Cisco doesn't have the leverage it does with the enterprise to say, you're going all in on us. So they have to be multi-domain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, yeah, I think that's the reality, but it's also, I'll bet there's a, I would, if I was a, an executive looking at this, I'd be going like, well, if I can sell them this SDN over the top, I can go in and shift out all of the non-Cisco gear and sell them my stuff as well and get double the revenue. That, that's, I'm sure that's part of their thinking, yes. But in the yep. meantime, they it's do have to- land and expand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they do have to support yeah. other optics. So That's right. And as a customer, you need to be like, okay, well, Cisco's going to try and land and expand. They're going to try and use their footprint to sell products at a higher price than they would in, the, in a competitive space. So I need to be aware of that and ready to protect my architecture and my strategy against that. Uh, one final thing that I'll point out was I was reading the Sedona uh, literature to try and get some insights into what they're working. And I read a white paper which says that, uh, and I'll quote, data from three tier one service providers suggest that 55 to 75% of physical 100 gig IP interfaces run at less than 20% peak utilization. Mm. And they, they draw a very long bow here. So I think it's very exaggerated, but okay, I'll go with it, right? This means that only 20% of network capex allocated for carrying traffic while much of the remaining 80% is wasted on over-provisioning to protect the network. So their pitch would be is, why aren't you running your network at closer to 100% capacity? And that is a pretty good pitch, to be fair, because most telcos waste money like things. They pretend that, you know, we've got to have these SLAs because that's what cu the customers don't want it. Customers don't need 5.9 reliability because they're using the internet to do everything. Why would I, you know? So we've had this discussion. I'm not going to keep going. Yes. No, but I understand your point. They're, they're saying, you know, instead of uh, spending more making that big CapEx, just continue to use what you've got with some software monitoring to make sure that you're delivering what you need to deliver. Just run it hot. Yeah. It makes more sense to have, instead of having for every active path, there's a standby and there's bandwidth reserved for the standby. But in the world we now live in, customers are shifting to SD-WAN, right? Mm -hmm. And the secret is two times the bandwidth is worth more to me running in degraded mode, 50% of the bandwidth then only using one bandwidth and having a standby. So the game's changing, right? right? And telcos makes more sense for an SDN strategy to say like, well, I've got 50 gigabytes of traffic traveling over here. If I had a failure, maybe I could route that across seven different paths, multi-paths. There's also a change in how many networks there are and how much bandwidth there is, but I need an SDN. The old ideas of segment routing and MPLS 
and doing them manually, that's not going to scale in the modern era. And so the, this is where the software part comes in. So in the other acquisition news at the complete opposite end of the Cisco business spectrum, uh, Cisco is picking up a company called Socio Labs. This is a virtual events company. Cisco is going to integrate Socio Labs with WebEx so customers can create virtual and hybrid events and they'll get capabilities like live streaming, registration, you can add sponsors, do attendee engagement and get analytics during and after the event. I thought it was Sokio Labs. It could be Sokio, I don't know. <laughs> Sokio? Socio. Socio. Who knows? Who cares? Because they're not going to be around much longer anyway. They're going to be Cisco, WebEx, uh, virtual events. So this is probably a, a, a reminder that Cisco is not a networking company. A lot of times we still think of Cisco as a networking company, as a networking podcast uh, or networking-centric, network infrastructure-centric. I sort of forget that Cisco has... An increasing percentage of its revenue comes from non-networking activities, if not half or more at this point. But I'd have to think about it. But uh, so obviously the first thing to think about here is that Cisco believes that WebEx still has a future, even though it hasn't been successful, you know, compared to Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, but they're still spending money to try and make sure it's a thing. And in this case, they're working on the theory that WebEx needs more features to be successful. But I still am generally of the view that I think most customers would rather it worked reliably than get too many more features. But let's say that that's a given, right? I think that Socio Labs actually brings virtual event features, think virtual conferences to the WebEx platform. Right. Uh, and to some extent, Zoom has already done that and been very successful. We use Zoom for webinar type activities and live stream events where you can come along and join in. And I suspect that... Cisco looks at that and goes like, why are our customers going to use Zoom or a competitor product for virtual events? We should have that. We should do that, right? We'll go and buy someone who does that and, and just bolt it onto the side of our. So I suspect that if you have WebEx now, this will be the tool that you'll have for webinars, training, in-house events, outhouse events, because it'll be easy to use that than to go somewhere else, right? Yep. Yeah, I got briefed by a virtual events company, and so I did a little digging into the space, and I was surprised to find out how many virtual events companies there are out there. There are a lot of them, dozens and dozens, uh, and they're trying mm. to do things beyond Zoom, like you know, virtual green rooms for guests. They'll do multi-camera angles. They'll do text overlays. They'll have clever ways to splice in video and presentations, and then give you analytics, and they handle registration. Um, so Cisco, I think, had a lot to choose from and also saw a pretty sizable market. There's a research firm that says global virtual events market was $78 billion globally for 2020, and they're forecasting a 23% compound annual growth rate. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of money on the table for virtual events, and we know at least for the next year, we're not going to go back to live events. So I think it's smart for Cisco yeah. to get into this space, although I do take your point that <laughs> I'd like to see WebEx work better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think <laughs> that would be one thing because every time I use it, I have problems. Other people tell me they don't. So obviously my experience is not Your universal, but I have enough people telling me, yeah. you know, that enough people tell me it's a problem compared to Zoom to say that WebEx is uh, clearly a, a, having a, a worse experience than most people would with Zoom, say. But I think also, I think you're right, virtual events aren't going away. And it's also fair to say that virtual events generally suck. <laughs> and most of it, comes down to things that software can't fix, better cameras, better microphones, getting some lighting on people. And there's nothing you can do to fix that unless people are solving that particular problem. And all of these things like these green rooms and meeting rooms and all this sort of stuff, every time I've been to an event, they kind of come away feeling creepy. And it feels like they're trying to ape or copy slavishly what we do in physical events without thinking about, they're not thinking about, well, when we're in a virtual environment, what is it that we can do? So they're sort of saying, well, at a conference, we've got booths, so we have to have booths. 
and we need a, a place for people to go and sit around because at physical events we have, you know, eating halls and lounges for people to sit because they can't walk anymore. Right. You know, that's what right. I don't I don't think that's the right idea. I think that's the wrong way to think about this. Yeah, there is an effort to sort of uh, duplicate that, uh, what they call the hallway track experience, where you run into folks and make those connections and have conversations mm. that are useful to you. But that's harder to do in an online space and virtual events, I don't think, have managed to capture that experience. And mm. I agree with you that most virtual events suck. I think it's not because of the technology. It's because the content is typically, typically bad. Uh, and that just comes to the fore more when you're <laughs> yeah. not in a giant auditorium with yeah. rock music being blasted in your face, uh, trying to stun you into submission, uh, that you realize, oh. wow, they're just up there flapping their gums and not saying anything useful. If I see another tech executive interviewing a sports star or a right. Hollywood star, right. I'm going like, I didn't come here to watch this. I came here to listen to yes. you talk about your company. I didn't come here to watch you have an ego trip on meeting someone famous, right? Right. There's a diminishing returns on polishing the turd of these bad, you know, uh, big keynote kind of things. So, yeah. 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 I think you need to think really carefully. I think it comes down to some basic mechanics around lighting, microphones, and, you know, video cameras, and then around getting the content right so that I listen, I want to listen to what you're saying. Exactly. Yes. Uh, in both of these acquisitions that we covered, Cisco did not announce the amount they bought them for, so we're assuming not too material to Cisco's bottom line. Yes, not material enough to report. There's nothing in the, in the stock exchange listings. So there must be tiny purchases, nothing too significant. Yeah. But they're making a deal out of them, probably because there's not much else to tell. These are all Both of these acquisitions are features, not transformational plays. Yeah, I agree. Uh, moving on, NetBees, they make network monitoring software for WAN, wireless, and remote workers. They're announcing a new path analysis capability to get more accurate views of your ECMP and internet networks. Uh, essentially, they're using some souped-up traceroute capabilities. Uh, yeah, this was a really interesting briefing, and the unique part here is that they're using a thing called Dublin Traceroute, which I hadn't heard of. And so thanks to NetBees for telling me about it and then implementing it into their product. It's a, a sort of a, a tool that you can use to probe multiple paths between two parts of your network. And then they have integrated that uh, product or that project, open source project into their software to make it much easier to use, which is really neat, right? Like we talked before about closing the day two operation loop, that idea that the software does more and more of the operations for you and, and assists you. And in some cases, when we talk about things like Mist AI and the Aruba M machine learning capabilities, they're actually closing the loop. They're actually going to do things for you and, and diagnose for you. This doesn't do that. This is much more in the old school of here's a better way of doing ping and traceroute, which is really easy to consume. So if you're someone who's sort of got a, a fairly simple requirements and what you want is to get some visibility into the underlay, I think this is neat. Yeah. So they were telling us about how, you know, traditional traceroute uh, on an ECMP network or a traditional internet network, you may miss nodes because of the way uh, a router or a load balancer moves packets across the network. Uh, traditional traceroute may, may not be able to see those nodes. And so you don't get the full picture. Uh, then there's research at the University of Sorbonne, I guess, that came out with a Paris traceroute. Uh, and then building on that, some folks in Dublin released the Dublin traceroute. So these are techniques to give you more precise mm. visibility uh, across those networks. Yeah, and you should definitely check it out. There's some links to these two projects, the Paris Traceroute and Dublin Traceroute, in the show notes, and they're worth reading just as an educational exercise and getting you thinking about how Traceroute works and why uh, and how to do it better. So Yeah, go check it and, out. And uh, if you want to look at NetBees, well, they've got it integrated into their product. 
All right, moving on, uh, our sponsor is Cables and Kits for today's episode. Cables and Kits is an award-winning IT equipment dealer. They focus on networking products, everything from SFP modules and servers to fiber and rack hardware. As part of Cable and Kits' gratefulness to Packet Pushers listeners, they're giving away a Cat8 Ethernet cable to anyone who mentions Packet Pushers when you make an equipment purchase. So whether you're looking for a one-off wall mount rack replacement or a full-blown data center outfit, Cables and Kits can help your team. Go to cablesandkits.com. Tell them Packet Pushers sent you. That's cablesandkits.com. Okay, back to the news. You've probably heard by now about the ransomware attack that shut down a major U.S. pipeline. More details are coming out about the attack, including detailed reports about how the dark side ransomware as a service organization runs. Uh, for some highlights, Bloomberg reports that the pipeline operator paid a ransom of nearly $5 million worth of Bitcoin to get things started. Uh, Bloomberg also cites an unnamed source who says that while the criminals did provide the decryption key, it was so slow, the company, quote, continued using its own backups to help restore the system. So I'm uh, not sure the payout was right. <laughs> yeah, I looked into the Bloomberg story. In the Bloomberg story, there's, there's some different articles from different places that suggest they didn't pay the, the fine and some that suggested they did. Mm. And Bloomberg has a propensity to exaggerate or to lie for headlines. We know that with the super micro hacking claim, you know, rice of grain on the grain of rice on the motherboard yep. thing. So that made me very, very dubious. Anything that comes out of Bloomberg related to technology needs double checking. And it is not at all clear that that is actually correct. The suggestion is um, other people are quoting the Bloomberg piece, but nobody's actually said true. So the colonial pipeline is not saying. What is interesting is the US government is definitely involved. So uh, the New York Times contacted the Biden administration and said, would you like to make a comment in a press briefing, and they said they refused to answer. Um, and so the White House press secretary said in a separate briefing, it's the recommendation of the FBI to not pay ransom because it can incentivize hackies. But she added that private sector entities or companies are going to make their own decisions. Yes. So you can have that both ways, right? <laughs> yes. My guess is because this was going to affect the fuel supplies for 45% of fuel supplies to the eastern US, mm -hmm. according to some of the press reports. Um, that they approached the government to check that they would not be legally culpable because they need to get this back in action. Who knows where that ended up, right? We may never know where that resulted. But I think that if you went to the government and said, look, we're thinking about paying the ransom just to see if we can get our critical national infrastructure back in play, politically, you might have a deal, if you know what I'm saying. Right. I, it's my understanding the U.S. government can't tell a private company to pay or not. They recommend, the FBI certainly recommends not paying, but if Colonial mm -hmm. wanted to just get things going again and felt like it was in their interest to pay, they would pay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that there's actually been legislation passed which criminalizes paying money to hackers. Uh, it's covered in terrorist legislation or anti-terrorism legislation. So if they wanted to take it on, they could. But if they're choosing not to, they don't. That's the interesting thing about laws. It's about the application of them, the enforcement of them, not necessarily whether the laws exist or not. Right. Sometimes, not all the time. Uh, so the on the case of the software to decrypt the data is slow. The article sort of suggests that the problem is with the uh, software that they were given. Right. I'm also thinking the software might not be great, but what's also possibly true is that the processing load to decrypt the software is might be substantial. Significant, yep. Yeah. And it might also be true that Colonial Pipeline has really old hardware that's not very good <laughs> and is not able to decrypt. So if you've got a, I could imagine, this is just a hypothetical, that something like a, a, a pipeline might have 10, 15 year old PCs that have been encrypted and decrypting it might well take a very long period of time. Yes. 
if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. right? If they've used a modern encryption algorithm that's heavy on using a modern algorithm, it might well take a very long time to decrypt those machines. So uh, it's interesting. That's bad for business for Darknet, of course. Uh, if you think about it, Darkside, who uh, is in this, has now got a reputation that even if they give you the decryption, it might not be enough to get you back in business. So they're going to have a tough time convincing companies, the next company to pay the same amount of money. Well, here's what's interesting. I read a couple of stories, uh, one from the research group uh, FireEye, uh, and then another one, I've got the link in the show notes, and they're saying how uh, these ransomware as a service organizations are starting to expand their extortion schemes. So one thing they'll do in addition to encrypting the data is exfiltrate it and then say, if you don't pay us, we'll share this data everywhere. Uh, They've also said things like, you know, we'll tell a stock trader ahead of our public announcement so somebody can make money on the side of this. Uh, and in one attack, uh, the intruders were able to gain in, uh, details on the company's cyber insurance policy. So as the company tried to negotiate with the ransomware gang, they were like, no, we know how much you're going to get from your insurance. So you have to pay us this amount. This is really smart. These, you know, it used to be that people who would, you know, use these exploits would demand some money and then run off and disappear. Right. These people are running a genuine business. They're, They're being business. really smart about it. They absolutely right? are running a business. Yes. Yeah. Now, the other side of this is you have provoked a government level, a state entity yes. <laughs> with a very embarrassing situation, I would would be expecting a very quiet but rather persistent operation to hunt you down. Yes. Right? So I suspect that Darkseid wants to be very, very good with their OPSEC going forward because I suspect that there's a very well-resourced, very substantial organization from the secret services and not just uh, from the US government. I suspect that they'll Five Eyes or even the G7 obviously excluding Russia, but they do have protection from the Russian government, it would seem. So it's going to be very interesting to see if the foreign, you know, if the secret services around the world who have expressed an interest to go actively, to be actively involved in these cyber cases, to see if they can burn down Darkseid's operations. Right. The Of course, the burning down one, this is the whack-a-mole case. Somebody else will pop mm. up somewhere else and start it all over. I think the upshot is that ransomware as a service is being proven out as a viable enterprise and locked files are just the tip of the iceberg. Yep. So, But this is a big company. This is like taking down, you know, one of the FTSE 50. You know, if you just took one of that company out because it, it did something wrong, like Enron, the collapse of Enron mm-hmm. in those terms. And if they don't do something now... This is going to get much more of a problem. Right. So I guess part of the reason I wanted to bring this up is that if ransomware wasn't on your radar, it should be. It very much should be. And and I would just observe, <laughs> I put a tweet out, so I'll just repeat it here. It's getting very difficult to tell the difference between ra- ransomware and a public cloud invoice <laughs> because the outcome is the same, right? If you don't pay your public cloud bill, you don't get your data back. <laughs> huh, I'm trying to think about how I feel about that. <laughs> I guess there are similarities, although presumably you went into the public cloud with yep. full knowledge, but <laughs> Yeah, presumably, you know, there's a little bit of a difference. But you know, if you're a CIO, you should be quite skilled at ransomware negotiations on the basis of the fact that your uh, public cloud strategy is basically built around the same principles. I guess. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you wanted to dig into this, and I recommend uh, you do, particularly that that uh, FireEye report was pretty interesting. Uh, moving on, in other news, an investigation by the Attorney General of New York found that the U.S.'s largest broadband providers funded a scheme to post fake comments on the FCC's public comment board. Uh, this was back in 2017 to support the repeal of net neutrality laws. Apparently, broadband companies hired marketing agencies to create fake accounts. The AG's report says in part, quote, 
The broadband industry players that funded the campaign spent $4.2 million generating and submitting more than 8.5 million fake comments to the FCC. So essentially, they astroturfed net neutrality. And I think there was widespread accusations at the time that this was uh, net neutrality revocation was moving through the FCC. There was widespread and substantiated accusations that this is exactly what happened. Uh And then after the accusations were made and data was requested, the FCC council, like the, the governing body, refused to release details ahead of the vote to revoke net neutrality, but then relied on this. And that is where the rub comes in, and this is why people are upset, is that this was so obviously an astroturfing campaign, and the FCC obviously seems to have known, or all the evidence suggests that they knew, um, and that everybody then assumed that the FCC politically chose to abandon net neutrality for various reasons, rumours of political lobbyists, donations to political parties, support for candidates or pork barrelling or all sorts of political shenanigans of which was happened in the last presidency. Um, suggests that FCC was moving down that path for political reasons, particularly to support telcos who were big supporters of the previous the previous political party. Um, so A, no surprise, and B, told you so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, something else in the Attorney General's report, which we have a link to and I recommend reading, uh, quote, nearly every comment and message the broadband energy submitted to the FCC and Congress was fake, signed using the names and addresses of millions of individuals without their consent or knowledge. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, the other thing that's really irritating about this is that um, the, the uh, AG report says it was the three biggest broadband companies in the United States. It doesn't say who they are, but we can all guess who they are. But uh, the broadband company set up essentially a cutout organization to spearhead this campaign. And so while some of the digital marketing mm-hmm. agencies are being fined for their involvement in this activity, there are no penalties or fines being levied against uh, the broadband yep. providers. So they got away with I just it. remind you that if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck and clacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I'm sort of surprised that there's not more outrage about this. It's uh, a really, mm. I mean, it's kind of gets me in the gut that they could get away with this. Yeah, I want to stay away from US politics. You know, <laughs> I've gone as far as I want to push this. Um, I do think it was a hallmark of the previous administration for this sort of thing to happen. And we didn't see this just for this. We saw it in a number of places. Well, it's not Let's even- move on. Yeah, but not even the administration. It's the broadband companies themselves behaving so reprehensibly is really what gets me. And they're going to get away with it. That's not new. They've done that for 30 years. They have. The yes, it's true. And I shouldn't expect anything more, but it still gets yeah, me. Which is why it's not news. We just assume that to be <laughs> the case. All right, I'll move on. Uh, Greg, you found some hints that the COVID devastation in India may be affecting tech support operations. Yeah, I had a couple of people drop in uh, in conversations and apparently support from Indian-based operations is actually heavily being influenced by COVID. Obviously, the COVID situation in India has reached really horrible proportions, horrifying to think so many people are dying and getting ill and that there's often no medical support for them. Yeah. And we're actually seeing vendors report almost 100% unavailability for phone-in requests due to the devastation. So people aren't showing up for work, people can't take calls whatever it is, you can open a ticket, but the best they can do is call you back as and when they can. Um, I've heard, so this is across the board because uh, all all of the big tech vendors have moved their support operations to India. Uh, so I, I saw this week, Qualos was talking uh, about how they've been leveraging low-cost, high-talent geographies. Uh-huh. They moved uh, 36%, they went from 36% of their customer support operations and R&D 
to 78% of headcount being based in India over the last five years. So they are heavily dependent on India and Indian personnel um, to get, they're using low cost, but high talent, as they call it. Uh, and with the COVID bringing India to a standstill, there may be another supply chain problem extending from this. So be aware of that, but also be sensitive to the fact to the people involved, they are in a terrible situation. COVID is absolutely at a at a critical situation in India and there's not much uh, we can do. Yeah, it's catastrophic and it's taking a real human toll. So keep that in mind if you're getting frustrated about a lack of support. Don't take it out on the people. It's absolutely not. Send an email to the CEO of the vendor and say, what are you going to do to fix this? Yeah, our sympathies to India. That's It's a really tragic situation. Um, moving yeah. on, VMware has appointed a new CEO. Uh, Raghu Raghuraman will step into the role recently vacated by Pat Gelsinger. Uh, he was current, He was the EVP and Chief Operating Officer of Products and Cloud Services at VMware, and I guess he's taking over around June 1st. He's been with the company since 2003. Yeah, uh, I saw some tweets out there about this. Apparently, Raghu has been a particularly uh, good at strategy. So he's been part of the person setting out the strategy for VMware and taking strategic directions. Uh, Sanjay Poonen, who was his competitor for the position or presumed competitor for the position, leaves the company. So, you know, a little bit of the uh, shakeout, as you like. Like if you're two of you fighting for the role and one of you gets it, the other person normally wins and goes on, you know, yep. the lion loses, slinks <laughs> out of the out yeah, of the pride. bows out, yes. Uh, so it would suggest that the VMware's board has chosen strategy over sales. Sanjay was much more of a salesperson and closing deals and moving tin, you know, mm -hmm. moving product. And they've said, no, what we want is somebody who can strategize us through the next few years of the company. Uh, obviously, if they're going to extricate themselves from Dell, which may or may not happen, there's been so much backwards and forwards on this, you wouldn't want to bet that VMware is going to separate itself from Dell. Um, there's various speculations that VMware might go to Intel, like Intel might buy VMware. <laughs> Bit of a stretch, but it's a not a not a far fetched. Intel needs to do something to refresh itself, and maybe that would be something that could really change the way they look. Like stop Intel being a hardware company and turn into a software company. But anyway, you know, so VMware's board and 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 the people who own the company have obviously decided that strategic is the right choice, not just sitting with selling selling stuff. I mean, a good strategic leader is what VMware needs. Uh, we know they've been competing on multiple enterprise fronts, the data center, the WAN, security, and now public cloud. Uh, I think their core hypervisor business is definitely threatened by the adoption of cloud-native application development. So they need mm. someone. I think they've been smart in the way they've diversified the business. I think they need to continue to do that and find a way to stay relevant uh, on the in, on, in this new cloud-native world. So yeah, I would pick definitely strategy so, over yeah. sales myself. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not the time. It's not sales is steady as you go activity, more of the same. Right. Yes. Yeah. Strategy is we need to sh we need to shoe on these business. You know, we need to merge security and networking into one business unit. Right. We need to make this and now we need to do this for telco. We need to yeah that sort of thing rather than the sort of ad hoc thing that they've been doing under Gelsinger. Yep. Uh, some financial news. Arista reported its Q1 2021 financial results. The company had revenues of $667 million, up almost 28% year over year, and net income of $180 million. Yeah, there's lots of... In obviously, the part about Arista doing great business and growing steadily, almost too steadily, I won't think. It's able to, to announce just the right amount of growth to get just enough, but never announces too much. Does that make sense? I guess. I don't, your typical jaundiced eye is uh, looking over these yeah. numbers, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think Arista always somehow just manages to to engineer their results to be good, but not awesome. And and you just get this 
constant quarter on quarter growth. It's just a little too linear for me. But anyway, I'm sure smarter people than me in the analyst, analyst, financial analyst community can come up with better words from that. Um, the thing that I notice in their their financial report that they submit to the market, they publish a, a report to investors. And one of the great things that they do is they put information in there about the state of the market. Uh -huh. And did you see the slide on data center Ethernet switch revenue? And the interesting part is that they're basically saying that uh, there's an analyst firm out there saying that Ethernet switch revenue in the enterprise will only be large enterprise and cloud by 2025. For all intents and purposes, data centers for enterprises will disappear by 2025 Other for medium enterprise. and small enterprises, yeah. mm, which I thought was interesting. I don't, that doesn't feel right, but it does have a sense, like it's it's a recognition that it, that market is definitely going to shrink. I mean, I think it's easy to predict a shrinking data center market. The question is how long and what you define as a data center. Uh, so yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So if you're, you know, somebody who's got skills around the small to medium data center networking, um, you might want to start thinking about diversifying because if that prediction's correct, vendors will tend to, like if that's a, that seems to be a widespread belief around the vendors and that will become self-fulfilling because they'll stop making products for small data centers. Right. If that makes sense. I mean, and then they won't, it, it, yeah. If that's true, that uh, it's only going to be large enterprise, that puts a lot of pressure on uh, Arista because I, I pulled out this from their um, a conference call. Our, our product line forecast annually expected to be 60 to 65% for core data center and 10 to 15% for adjacent campus and routing, which means the vast majority of their business has to come out of data center as opposed to campus. And so if smaller data yeah. centers are vanishing, that's bad for Arista. I think that that data center revenue will come from large enterprises. So they will get more customers. It's hard going against Cisco, Juniper, et cetera, because everybody's focusing on that smaller piece of pie. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> but Arista's shown that they can, you know, my belief still remains that Arista is a better Cisco than Cisco. They're doing, they take the fundamental product values that you want and just do them stably, reliably, predictably. The product does what it says. It's stable and reliable. Their tech support is better. They deliver on a cadence, which is, you know, if they say they're going to deliver a feature, they deliver it. Mm -hmm. But I also note that their marketing message is now heavily focused around cognitive cloud networking, yes, which is their version of software-defined. Right. So they're getting the, the finally, the last of the networking holdouts who hasn't really been into the software-defined is starting to really move its organization over into that as well. Uh, slowly and steadily again, yes. As you say, they've been pretty quiet on the hype train compared to others. Yeah, they're steady and sedate like Cisco. They just move down a particular track. They do what they do and they move. the path is very predictable, very linear, I think. Yeah. But the execution is outstanding. Uh, just because we've been talking about supply chain, I this popped out to me in their uh, conference call. Uh, we now have plans, this is a quote from uh, the CEO, we now have plans for many components with 52-week lead times and supply chain is going to remain a pain point for the balance of the year. And that is the one fly in that ointment the, <laughs> the stick in the spokes is that all of the vendors are now reporting year-long lead time on orders. So you can expect lots of problems coming ahead. All right, we'll leave you with a space networking story. SpaceX has announced a partnership with Google in which some base stations for its Starlink satellite broadband service are going to be built inside Google Cloud data centers. When you read the articles on this, I think they've got the wrong end of the stick on this. What Starlink is doing is placing base stations for its satellite network at Google Cloud physical locations, so next to their data centers. It is seems to me from the reading that this is a network interconnection issue. It's not 
necessarily the fact that Starlink is using Google Cloud as some mega constellation administration system. It may be that SpaceX and Starlink uses Google Cloud as its primary cloud provider, but that's not what's intimated here. My belief is that Starlink already has existing interconnections with Azure. AWS already has its own base stations that it built itself to be connected to satellite networks mm-hmm. and presumably would connect to Starlink. And so maybe this is just GCP catching up. Yeah, or maybe SpaceX wanting to hop on Google's backbone to get uh, data to consumers back on the ground quicker or as fast as possible. Yeah, people moving data over Starlink will be accessing resources in Google Cloud. They are internet exchange points or major termination points in the network. Yep. So having internet, ex- having uh, telco exchange points in there is just okay. No big deal. Yep, makes sense. I, I would expect this, Yes. right? Yes. And they're spreading it around in that they're also going with Azure and others. So it's not just Google. Exactly. Yeah. And they've got one everywhere else. And no doubt Starlink will connect to Alibaba's network if they're allowed to and so on and so forth. Right. All right. As always, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. That does wrap up our news portion. Please stay tuned for our sponsored TechBytes conversation with Path Solutions on network monitoring and management. That's coming right up. You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast. Today, we're talking about automating network troubleshooting with network performance management. We're sponsored by Path Solutions today, and our guest is Tim Titus, CTO at Path Solutions. Tim, welcome to the podcast. And can you start us off with the you know the thirty thousand foot view of Path Solutions and what you do? So, thank you. Uh, so, the thirty thousand foot view really is is that we automate collecting and analyzing problems in the network. Really, what we started out with is as a, a group of engineers, we figured. If there was some automatic way that you could throw some software at your network and have it say, tell me everything broken in this network in an automated fashion. I don't care whether you have Cisco, Juniper, you know, old 3Com switches, whatever. Tell me what I need to know so that I can troubleshoot and fix the problems in this network. And that's really what we dreamed of. Uh, and that's really what we focused on achieving. So how are you getting data and what kind of data are we talking about? You're talking about... Configurations, logs, SNMP, what are you pulling? Effectively, all of the above. Primarily, we start out with SNMP. So we will dig at devices to find out uh, what is the device. Is it a Cisco switch? Is it a Nexus switch? Is, you know, what are the capabilities of the switch? How is it configured? So we pull a lot of that information through SNMP in an automated fashion so that we'll learn, oh, there's QoS configured. Great. How is the QoS performing? So we automate all of that collection, bring the information back, put it through a heuristics engine, and the results are we're able to tell you, hey, you've got a QoS misconfiguration here and you're dropping packets out of your high priority queue, or you have a VLAN tagging fault, or you have a cabling fault, or even a duplex mismatch. So what we figure is the information is out there. Typically what happens is when people have network monitoring solutions, they ping their switches and routers, they check a few interfaces for status, and that's as far as they go. Thus, if the user has a call quality problem, they check their monitoring system and the monitoring system says, hey, everything's healthy in their environment. That's a disconnect because it means the truth is out there and they have to manually log into switches and routers to try and find out what's broken. If they automated that, then they'd be able to see here are all of the error counters, all of the QoS, all of the configuration, all the performance on all of the involved devices so that they could look and say, what happened 30 minutes ago when this call was bad and determine that's when there was a QoS misconfiguration and we were dropping packets out of a high priority queue. The collection and the automation of of the interpreting the data. 
So you're actually collecting the data and then showing me what happened historically. So that's the standard sort of visibility tooling uh, that we have. But you're also suggesting that you've done some automation. What sort of, is that based around a heuristics type of analytics engine that says, I know what this looks like, I know what this does, this is what the problem is? Yes. So the heuristics engine has been built really over the past 12 years. And what it is, is it's just a whole bunch of network smarts built in to be able to say, when we see this error counter and this other error counter on a switch at the same time, and it's a Cisco switch, here's the result. Here's what's going on. You have a QoS misconfiguration or you have a, uh, a, a, a microburst link flood. So it's able to help guide you with getting these problems resolved because you don't have to go crack open the books and say, what does it mean when we have deferred transmissions on this type of interface running at 10 gig speed? We can say you're dealing with microburst link floods. Therefore, you can realize this is a bandwidth issue, even though the interface might look like it's only running at 40% utilization, microburst link floods will still cause packet loss. You're actually getting very granular visibility here. You're doing more than just reading an SNMP counter, you're actually looking for microbursts in the underlying hardware. Yes, yes. So what we have is we have an understanding of the chipsets, the various different chipsets that are in use by the manufacturers to be able to take that data and extrapolate plain English answers from it so that you can do the root cause troubleshooting that you need to do to support a network. One of the things we were frustrated with is that you have a network engineer working at your company, you have a network engineer working at the company across the street and the company down the street and the company across town, and they're all attempting to do the same thing. They want to get information out of their switches and routers and find out what's broken, what is causing my call quality issues, what is causing users to disconnect from databases and have these sorts of issues. And I figure if they're all trying to do the same thing, they all need some automation so that they're not having to reinvent the wheel by saying, well, go collect this OID and this other OID, put it together with some NetFlow information, correlate it with some syslog information to arrive at a conclusion. There should be software that does this in an automated fashion to say, when we see all of these clues, tell the user, you have a microburst link flood, you need more bandwidth on this interface. I think that correlation part is important because, you know, I can collect a lot of information and throw it in a bucket and then it's sort of up to me to sift through it like, you know, a giant bucket of Legos and that can be <laughs> very hard, difficult to do. So, well, and the other thing is you have to be the expert. You, you mm -hmm. have to be a senior level engineer to do this sort of diagnostic and not every company has five senior level engineers around to do it. You either have one seriously overworked senior engineer that would love to push some of this stuff down to even the help desk. Imagine if imagine if you could say, I'm going to push half of this stuff or more than half of this stuff down to the help desk to say, go fix these duplex mismatches that were discovered. Go fix these uh, uh, these interfaces that are running 100 meg that are having uh, microburst link floods. Go fix all of these problems. I don't have to fix them anymore. I don't even have to diagnose them because the system has diagnosed them for me. And what I want to make sure I understand is that so you're saying that your software is collecting, you know, this fault from system A and this log from system B and this, uh, you know, some uh, SMB message coming off system C, but it's stitching them together for me. So I'm not having to look through each individual thing. You're actually surfing it up as this is what the problem is based on these elements that we saw and put together. Exactly, exactly. And so it's not that we're putting network engineers out of business. We're just making it so that you're going to solve more problems at the end of the day and not have to work a 12 hour day, day after day after day. 
Uh, we figure if you get the right information in front of you that's automatically analyzed, that means your troubleshooting is now an automated process and can be pushed lower in the organization. Honestly, I've never met a senior level network engineer that loves doing trouble tickets. So <laughs> I don't know if you guys have, but if you can push a lot of this stuff down, uh, that just means everyone's happier at the end of the day and problems get solved faster. I think there's a few things behind that idea of pushing it down is that there's usually people in the junior ranks who want to step up, but the gap between that junior rank and that senior rank can be so wide that it's very difficult for them to get to the senior engineer's level because there's such a gap. Whereas these tools can often bridge that and they can start to make it, you know, once I can see something happening and I can, I start to learn while delivering results. Exactly. Exactly. And in one sense, that's going to help teach them, oh, when you see this problem, this problem, this problem all together, and we produce this plain English diagnostic of, hey, go check this interface for its, its uh, uh, VLAN configuration, the user is going to go in and say, oh, yeah, there is a misconfiguration here. And they're going to start learning from that so that in, in a certain sense, in the future, they don't need a tool, but the tool has been kind of uh, uh, instructional. So, you know, we're talking about SNMP and logs and heuristics, and Craig and I always complain about ML washing and AI washing. You haven't mentioned that. So you're saying that the, the old tools, that the tools that folks coming up have worked with, you can still extract a lot of value from them if you're doing the right things with them. Oh, yeah. Well, if you think about it, anytime you go to solve a problem, you check your monitoring solution and it says everything's healthy. The very next thing you do is you say, I need to log into some switches, log into some routers, check interfaces, check error counters, check configuration. And you're looking for that needle in a haystack. And then you realize, okay, well, this switch was involved, but I don't see any problems. Let's log into the next switch. Let's log into the next router. Let's log into the next firewall. And so you're investigating manually to try and find out what's going on. Sadly, you could do that whole exercise and say, I just spent three hours trying to track down a packet loss problem and you still can't find it because the problem's not happening when you're looking. And so that's what we figured we'd solve is if we have all of this information on a continuous basis on all of the involved switches, routers, firewalls, you're gonna be able to say, let's go back in time 30 minutes to when this user had this problem and see what error counters were happening and if our product says, hey, 30 minutes ago, you had a packet loss on this interface due to a cabling fault, you're going to look at it and say, yeah, dropping 6% of the packets due to a cabling fault on this fiber link. Okay, what was going on during that time? Oh, Bob was in the wiring closet and he was readjusting some wires. And you go up to Bob and say, Bob, did you touch this piece of fiber? Oh, yeah, I curled it a little bit over here to get it out of my way. Great, mm. you just caused a ton of packet loss. <laughs> you have all of the ability to say, this is the root cause of the problem because all of the information was automatically collected from the devices. So how is this deployed? Am I running agents on devices or am I just, how do I get this out? And how do I make sure I'm getting full network visibility and not missing essential systems? So this is deployed on a single Windows server, typically on-prem. Uh, it's going to use SNMP to go collect the information so we can be fully set up for some very large networks within one hour. Uh, all we need is SNMP read-only. Uh, we'll collect syslog, we'll collect NetFlow, uh, we'll correlate all that information together so there's no agents needed, no spans, no taps. Uh, and it's just going to start sucking knowledge out of those devices and say, here's what the equipment knows that you should know. 
And what we found a lot of our customers do is they deploy this and they say, wow, there's all sorts of things that are broken here that they weren't aware of with their other monitoring system because it didn't go broad enough or deep enough or have the smarts to back, be mm. able to interpret the stuff. And so we expose a whole bunch of interesting things that they're like, oh, here's 12 things we can do to improve the network right now because a deeper view and broader view has been provided with the heuristics to say, here's the plain English answer of what's broken. And I notice that you're not just limited to on-premise. You've also got some insights into the cloud and you monitor VoIP or unified unified collaboration, if you want to call it that. Uh, you're also able to use flow analysis. What I know that flow analysis is really flavor of the month. It's the latest fashion. Is there anything about the NetFlow Analyzer that you want to share? So we do some really unique things with NetFlow, and that's actually associated with our security module. So we have a SecOps module that's going to be able to look at policies to say, are you breaking any policies with communication policies? Uh, is there communication with unsavory countries? So we have geographic risk awareness. Uh, we have exposures that will say, gee, you have inappropriate communications going on either inside or outside your environment because you're using unencrypted HTTP or Telnet or uh, other bad practices. Uh, we also have the ability to do SOAR to be able to tell you, hey, we found this workstation that is doing something unsavory in your environment and there's just a lot of strange communications and be able to trigger alerts on that that can uh, feed data into your SIM uh, as well as just enrich a sore activity. So there's definitely clearly a focus here on troubleshooting. Are you able to tie into if I have a ticketing system or if I'm doing Slack ops, can you uh, tie in there? Yeah, so we can automatically generate tickets to help enrich uh, ticketing systems to say, here's more clues to what's going on. In general, though, I'm going to say we have all of the clues and are going to pre-interpret what's going on and give you, hey, here's a plain English diagnostic of what's going on to speed the troubleshooting and understanding. But we can still feed the raw clues in to say, here's all of those raw clues that came to this conclusion. And in terms of you know, moving tickets through a system so that I know they've been cleared, you can also do that? Or do you work with a third-party system for that? So we don't do the ticket management, I guess I should say. We're really kind of a source for the the, the data and the interpretation. Okay, but you can feed into one, a ticketing system. Correct. Mm. Got it, okay. Well, yeah, you normally raise tickets and then you use Path Solutions as a tool to research and then go back to the ticket. But those integrations would be done at an API level. Correct. And so our, our front end is all RESTful JSON, so there's full integration capabilities. Any information you want to scrape out of the product is easy to do. Well, Tim, you may have uh, wet folks' appetite uh, on this Path Solutions solution. So if folks want to find out more, where would you send them? So I'd go to www.pathsolutions.com. Uh, we have an online demo sandbox if you want to take a tour of the product yourself. Uh, there's a lot of videos that will show what we're able to do, or you can schedule a meeting with an engineer and we'll have one of our engineers show you how this can benefit your environment. Fantastic. All right, that's Path Solutions, all one word, pathsolutions.com. Uh, thank you, Tim, for joining us and thanks to Path Solutions for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.